Well, we have been in a series on Lord's Day morning, a kind of mini-series, as it were, uh, regarding highlights in the life of Jesus Christ, and how do you pick highlights in the most wonderful life that has ever been lived on earth. Uh, We're not covering all of Jesus' life, but I think there are highlights in the sense that they are ones that stick out in our memory, and certainly ones that themselves are highlighted in the Scripture. In fact, uh, there was a man years ago named G. Campbell Morgan, and he wrote a book entitled The Crises of the Christ. Crises, that's crises with an E. And he was mentioning the fact that there really are these seven kind of events that stick out in our Lord's life that were like events that just pop out that speak to who he is and why he had come. And so we've been looking at these. I actually have chosen eight of them for us to look at. We've examined our Lord's incarnation when God stepped out of heaven and took on humanity and was born in Bethlehem. We looked last week at the baptism of Jesus. What was that event? Why did it occur? What was taking place? This morning we're here in the fourth chapter of Matthew to look at the temptation of of Christ. What was going on in this temptation? Why did it occur? Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the transfiguration of Jesus. And for a moment on a mountaintop, three disciples with him saw him in his glory. Following that, we'll look at the triumphal entry of Jesus when he came into Jerusalem, followed by his crucifixion on Good Friday, and that will lead us right into Easter. And we will celebrate together the resurrection of Christ. And then the following week, I'd like to add the ascension of Christ. And he returned to heaven. And what did that mean? So that's the map that's laid out for us. This morning, I want us to look together in Matthew chapter 4 at the temptation of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis said with regard to this account in the life of our Lord, he said, No man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. And he gives this illustration. He says, You don't really know the strength of the wind by laying down in front of it. You only know it by standing up and walking into it. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes doesn't really know the strength of that temptation or what it would have been even an hour later. We never find out the strength of evil until we try to fight against it. And Lewis says, Christ because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man that knows what full temptation is. Jesus' temptation was unique in that he faced the full strength of Satan's tactic and was yet victorious. So what happened at this temptation? What are we to learn from it? And what are we to learn from our Lord about it? I want to begin this morning by noting the setting in which this temptation took place. Because that's very important to discover. 
What is the setting? If you'll look with me at the text in Matthew 4 and verse 1, the fourth chapter begins with the word, what is it? Then. Indicating that it follows on the heels of the end of chapter 3. What has happened in chapter 3? Fortunately, we looked at this last week, and we've noted that this was the baptism of Jesus. This was the anointing of, of the Son of God for service. But at the very end of that baptismal event, we're told in verse 17, there's a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You have this verbal authorization of the identity of Jesus by the Father. This is my son. He's my unique beloved son. He's been well pleasing. He is the son of God. And that's going to play very importantly in this temptation. Because you'll notice how Satan approaches our Lord. Verse 4, Satan will say to Jesus, if you really are the Son of God, then do this. He'll say this again in verse 6, and if you are the Son of God, then do this. So immediately after this highlight in the life of our Lord, this baptism of the Lord, where he is confirmed as the Son of God from heaven, that very issue is going to be put into play now in the temptation that follows immediately afterwards. Another setting for this temptation is this. If you look at chapter 4 and verse 1, then Jesus was led up by who? By the Spirit. Do you realize that this temptation was directed by the Spirit of God? This wasn't Satan inviting Jesus to this assault. It was rather the Spirit of God directing the King of kings and Lord of lords to be victorious over Satan. This was preparation for Jesus' ministry. It was Martin Luther, the great reformer, that said, really, there are three things that prepares a man for ministry. Meditation, prayer, and temptation. Unless a man of God understands the necessity of those three things and how to overcome those three things, they're not prepared for ministry. And this is now what is occurring in the life of our Lord as he is setting out on his public ministry of three years. He faces a great temptation. It is directed by God. The other Gospels, Mark and Luke, are more deliberate. In fact, Mark uses a very strong word and says, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, pushed him into this. There was direction that was necessary that the Son of God would face the tempter in the wilderness. And that brings us to the place where this occurred. Notice Jesus was alone in the wilderness in verse 1. He's led up by the Spirit into this wilderness for the purpose of being tempted by the devil. In other words, the only way we know anything about this event that took place in Jesus' life is he must have relayed this to Matthew, to his disciples, so that they could record it. No one else was there to see it. It is Jesus by himself, with Satan, in the wilderness. Well, where is this wilderness? What did it look like? 
Here's a map for you. If you're picturing there, that's the Sea of Galilee, that little body of water. It's the Mediterranean Sea there on the right of your screen, or the left of your screen, rather. You see the orange line? That's the path that Jesus likely would have taken from Nazareth when he closed up his shop and went to be baptized in the Jordan. And it's there, the Jordan River, that connects the Sea of Galilee with the Dead Sea, that in that spot that Jesus would have been baptized. And you can see the green line then that directs you what would be east of the Jordan, and that would be led into the wilderness. The green line shows where Jesus would have gone during this temptation. Well, what did that landscape look like? Today, here's the wilderness east of the Jordan. Barren, rocky, dry. The Bible tells us that the Spirit of God sent Jesus into this location where no other earthly eye would behold what was to take place, but where Jesus alone would face the onslaught of Satan. And how long was he there? Look at verse 2. And after fasting, how long? Forty days and forty nights of fasting. And then it just says, he was hungry. Wouldn't you be? This would have been similar to what we read of Moses in Exodus chapter 34, that Moses fasted 40 days when he received instruction from God. Elijah in 1 Kings 19 fasted. 40 days in receiving instruction from God. And Jesus follows this similar pattern. 40 days, he would be alone in the wilderness with Satan. And we're told in Luke's gospel that it was all during those 40 days that he was tempted. Matthew now tells us after these 40 days of fasting, here are the last three pointed aspects of temptation directed at Jesus. What I want to do this morning is just note these three temptations in order, understand them in their context, and how the Lord addresses them from biblical context, that we also might know how to face temptation. Let us note, please, the first temptation. We read of this in the third and the fourth verse of Matthew chapter 4. We're told that after fasting, Jesus <clears throat> was hungry. Is it possible for somebody to fast for 40 days and survive? That was a question that was asked throughout history. We actually have a modern-day example of this. In 2003, there was a man by the name of David Blaine, and he put himself in a glass cage over the Thames River in London, and he fasted for 44 days while the world watched. Everybody watched his body as it went through change, as he endured this. But he survived those 44 days in a glass cage, <clears throat> fasting over the Thames River. He did it as a kind of spectacle, but to demonstrate that it could be done. Much fasting is done today. People speak of the physical benefits of it or mental uh, exercise of it. But the purpose of Jesus fasting for 40 days and 40 nights in the desert, we'll see is that he did so in complete obedience to the will of God. Much of what he was doing was painting a picture and fulfilling a kind of example 
in himself as he faced Satan. But notice Satan's tactic and approach to Jesus in this first temptation. Look at what he does. Verse 3. The tempter came to him at the end of these 40 days and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Here's the temptation. Command the stones to become loaves of bread. And he says, do this if you are the Son of God. Now, I need to get technical here for just a minute with the language of the text. In the original language, there are certain ways to express certainty or uncertainty regarding the the arrangement of words. In our English Standard Version, it reads in verse 3 and verse 6, if you are the Son of God, a kind of uncertainty, right? Is Satan saying, if this is really true, we're not sure, but if this is really true, here's what you must do. But actually, in the original language, it is stated in a matter of certainty. And the best translation of it would read this way. Since you are the Son of God, here's what you should do. Remember, that's exactly what has just been attested to verbally back in chapter 3 and verse 17. God himself from heaven said, this is my Son. And Satan picks up on that in the psyche of Jesus, even in his humanity, and says, God has said this about you. You are his beloved son. Since that is true, do this. Command the stones become loaves of bread. What is the appeal? The appeal is this. Jesus... Your God's beloved Son, use your power, your divinity, to meet the legitimate need of your humanity. You're hungry. Certainly, God's Son shouldn't be hungry. Use your ability and your divinity to meet the need of your humanity. William Hendrickson says it this way. This is the appeal and the temptation. Since you are God's son, make use of your majestic dignity and no longer torture yourself with hunger. Now, on the surface, does that sound so bad? Is there anything wrong with being hungry and satisfying that hunger? Anything wrong with that? Not at all. We all have legitimate physical needs as physical beings living in this world. And which one of us here today would not say it's perfectly legitimate to fulfill that need that God has, has, has made a, aware, a me aware of? So what is the temptation? How would Jesus be failing or sinning by making these stones that, by the way, would have looked like the bread that they ate. What would be the problem with making those into bread so that he could satisfy his hunger? Well, notice what Jesus says in response, and this helps us to understand the temptation. Look at verse 4. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Where is Jesus quoting from? He's quoting from the 8th chapter of the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. If you have your Bible, it's very important that you turn there with me this morning because it's the context of this quotation that tells us what exactly is going on in the temptation here. Notice that Jesus responds to Satan, not with his personal opinion at this point, but he responds with what God has already said. It is written. God has said something about what you're asking me to do, Satan. And he takes him right back to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. If you're looking in your Bible, it's five books in. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And let me just give you the context. The context of Deuteronomy 8 is this. The children of Israel, God's people, were were, uh, slaves in Egypt. God delivered them out of Egypt miraculously. You maybe recall the story of those ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. And God has delivered them out of Egypt miraculously. And when they come out of Egypt, they don't immediately go into the promised land, but are faithless before God, and they wander in the wilderness how long? Forty years. Have we heard of 40 before? And where are they? They're in a wilderness. And they don't have any means by which they can provide for themselves in a wilderness. And so what did God do during this wilderness wandering? Look at verse 2 of Deuteronomy 8. Moses says to this people, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years years in the wilderness why did he do that that he might humble you and what was he doing testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not that 40 years of wilderness wandering for God's people was a test now look at verse 3 and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And that's the verse our Lord is quoting in his temptation to Satan. As God led these people in the wilderness into a test, what was the test for them? The test was this. Would they trust God to meet their need in the wilderness? They're completely dependent on him, having come out of Egypt. Now will they look to God as their provider and trust him to provide exactly what they need? And this was critical for them to learn that their dependence for their physical need was to be dependent upon God and God alone. He's their provider. Why would that be important? Look at Deuteronomy 8 and verse 7. God says this is important. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills. It's a land of wheat and barley, of vines and figs and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you'll eat bread without scarcity, you'll lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you'll dig copper. And God says, you're coming into this land, verse 11, so take care lest you forget the Lord your God. Verse 14, then your heart may be lifted up 
and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Verse 16, he fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do good in the end. And what God was telling these people is this, you're going into a land of plenty and when you have so much, you're going to forget this, that I, God alone, am your provider. That you didn't get these things by the power of your own hand or your own strength, but I, the Lord, am the one who provides for you. Therefore, you should be dependent upon me and my provision for you when I give it to you and what I give to you. Now, what is the parallel? Go back to Matthew chapter 4. In fact, I want you to look back in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew plays on this in his gospel. Matthew 2, we read of the birth of Jesus, the visit of the wise men. But in verse 13 of Matthew 2, maybe you have a heading above that. What does it say? Where did, Moses, where did Joseph and Mary and Jesus go when there was a threat from Herod? To Egypt. But were they there for long? Verse 19, But when Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in Egypt and saying, Rise, take the child, leave Egypt. Sound familiar? God says, I've called my son out of Egypt. Jesus and Joseph and Mary would leave Egypt. They would come back to Nazareth. And as soon after that, Jesus would be raised. But when it comes to public ministry now, he himself goes into the wilderness for 40 days. And he's tempted and tested. And what is the test? Will the Son of God trust entirely in the provision of God during that temptation? What is the nature of this temptation? Let me put it to you this way. The first temptation was this. Satisfy a legitimate need through illegitimate means. Hunger is a legitimate need, but do you trust God enough to even hunger in his will and wait for his provision? You know, we face this temptation. How do we face it? God oftentimes allows us in his will to suffer hunger and even suffer need. Maybe we don't have entirely what we need financially. We suffer physically. And we pray and we pray and we ask God to do something about it. And when God doesn't answer, we just assume God didn't hear us. Therefore, I must do something about this. I've got to take it into my own hands and meet my own needs. And here's what that looks like sometimes. You have a young person who longs to be married. Is marriage a good thing? It's one of God's greatest gifts. You have a young person who longs to be married married, and they find someone, but that person does not know the Lord. It would be an illegitimate union in marriage, but because they say God has not answered in any other way, and that person marries the wrong person. They have been tempted to meet a legitimate 
need. Marriage is God's good gift. But without waiting on God and God's timing in God's good way. Does that happen? Or you have need. You have physical, need of physical provision. No work. There's too much month at the end of your money. No income. You begin thinking, I prayed and asked God to do something for me, but he's not doing anything. I must take this into my own hands. Well, is it really going to matter if I cheat just a little bit on my taxes? If I fudge a few numbers here or there, after all, the government's just going to waste it. I, I need that more than that. Maybe I have a legitimate need of, of finances, but I, I look to meet that in illegitimate ways. Or, or maybe it's, well, you know, maybe I can justify the fact that I do have some kind of disability. If I spin it just right, I've got this disability that would enable me to get this windfall from the government. God's not meeting my need. Maybe this is the way it's going to happen. There's a temptation. It's a legitimate need, but will I wait upon God and trust him, or will I take it into my own hands and do so in an illegitimate way? You wanted more opportunities for your children. And because you felt that God wasn't meeting those opportunities of friendship or education or whatever the case may be, you took it upon yourself to leave God's appointed place for you and move to a desert where they would not be helped spiritually. Do we not face this temptation? God often places us in a place of need, legitimate need, to see what's really in our heart. Can I really trust God with this? Jesus faced that to the hilt. And he told Satan, it is written, man should not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. I am entirely dependent on God's will for me, be it much or be it little. I trust in him. Jesus' reply is an absolute expression of confidence in God's care, even in the face of loss. Do you have that kind of confidence? Notice with me the second temptation. What is the nature of this second temptation? Again, notice the approach that Satan takes. Look at verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Well, where is that? Well, I have a picture here of where people assume it might be, and, and it makes a lot of sense. You'll see there on the right of your screen, that is the corner of the temple in Jerusalem. And that's a great height, just that temple wall itself. But you actually, if you're standing on that height, you can look down into what's called the Kidron Valley, and there's a great distance 
Now, we might think of a high place like the Freedom Tower in New York City that's over 1,700 feet high. There was no structure like that in the ancient world. But this was a magnificent site, a high place where Jesus would have been brought by Satan, amazingly enough. He's standing in the corner of this this temple mountain and this, this vast wall, and he's looking way down into the valley there, and this is a tremendous height. And so what is the temptation here? Why this place? Why would he be tempted here? Well, this really is the opposite of the first temptation, and let me show you this. What is the second temptation? Look at what he says in verse 6. Satan says to Jesus from this height, if, or really since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Now, how is that a temptation? Throw yourself off this height. Well, look at what he says to him. Verse 6, now it's Satan quoting Scripture. It is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. What is the temptation? Some people say, well, this must have been a kind of public display of Jesus' power. So Jesus, throw yourself off the temple. The angels will catch you, won't let you suffer harm. Everyone will see it, and they'll acknowledge you as the Messiah. Is that the temptation? Some fine commentators have come to that conclusion, but I don't think that's what's happening at all. In fact, Let's note what Satan says in its context. Look at the 91st Psalm. This is where Satan is quoting from. Look at Psalm 91. What is the appeal for Jesus to throw himself down? Throw yourself off this great height. Look at the 91st Psalm. Look at verse 1. The psalmist writes, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I what? Okay, the previous temptation, what has Jesus just proven? My absolute trust is in God even in the face of adversity and hunger. Satan picks up on that. And he says, you know what? The Bible says something about that. Look at verse 9 of the 91st Psalm. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. Why not? Verse 11, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And here's another illustration. You'll tread on the lion and adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Who is given this assurance? Look at verse 14. God says, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. Had anyone held fast to the Lord in love more than Jesus Christ? And you can see Satan picks up on that language and he says, 
okay, Jesus, you say you're completely trusting in the Father. You won't even make these stones into bread to feed yourself. You have that kind of confidence. Well, let's trust that confidence. Here we are in the temple. Throw yourself down if you really trust him. Let's see if you trust him that much. Do you see the temptation? Well, look at Jesus' response. Go back to Matthew 4. Verse 7, Jesus says to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What is Jesus' response? We should not test God. And again, Jesus is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. Do you know where? If you have a cross-reference in your Bible, it's Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let's go there. Look at Deuteronomy 6. You see, it's very important that we understand that when Jesus or even the apostles in the New Testament are quoting the Old Testament, they're quoting it in a context. And that context itself has to be brought to bear on what they're saying. So look at Deuteronomy 6. Here's the verse that Jesus quotes. Look at verse 16. It reads, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him, where? At Massah. Well, what happened at Massah? Okay, let's take a little break. We're doing some heavy swimming, right? You could read through the Bible right there and you say, okay, here's the verse that Jesus quoted. Don't test the Lord like he did at Massah and just go on your way and be satisfied. But don't you want to know what happened at Massah? Why is that important? You with me? All right, let's find out what happened at Massah. Go to Exodus 17. This now is the people of God have come out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. Exodus 17, look at verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Verse 2, therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you what? Test the Lord. Isn't that what Deuteronomy 6 said? Isn't that what Jesus said to Satan? How did they test the Lord? Well, keep reading. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and all of our livestock with thirst? And then notice verse 7. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they did what? Tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Here's how they tested the Lord. Lord, are you really with us or not? Here's what that means. They questioned whether or not God was really with them in the wilderness. And they said, here's how we'll know. We're going to force God's hand. Give us water. Lord, are you really with us or not? Where's the water? Give us the water to prove to us that you're with us. 
Do you see that? They, in a sense, are trying to force God's hand. Do this, Lord. Show us. Prove it that you're with us. Now, this parallels Jesus' situation in Matthew 4. When he's on the pinnacle of the temple, Satan is telling him, force God's hand. Is God with you or not? Jump. Let's see if he's with you. Force God to intervene miraculously and demonstrate that you are the Son of God. Do you see that? They're demanding miraculous intervention to prove that God is still with them, and it parallels Jesus' situation perfectly. Here's the temptation. It worked like this. Demand miraculous intervention to prove God's presence. Now, do we ever face this temptation? This kind of temptation comes to people who really don't want to take things into their own hands, but are really in earnest about trusting God with things. But sometimes we test God in that, and it looks like this. How far should anyone go in really trusting the Lord? You have a medical issue. You're ill. You've seen some doctors. But you think, you know, I just need to trust God in this and get rid of all the doctors and all the medicine and just cast myself on the Lord that he would heal me. Beloved, oftentimes that's nothing but testing the Lord and demanding that God, you intervene in my life miraculously to demonstrate your presence with me. That really can be a test, a test of the Lord. What about someone who is unable to pay their bills and, and they're, they're without money and they come to the end of the month and they say, you know what, I'm, I'm not really getting enough work and, 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 and nothing else seems to be happening and I think what I really just need to do is trust God. So I'm going to block out everything. I'm not going to look for work. I'm going to quit all the work I have. I'm going to go into my closet and I'm going to pray and I'm going to pray until God answers my prayer and sends a good job or sends me enough money to live on. And that sounds really, really spiritual, doesn't it? But it can be nothing but tempting the Lord. You are demanding miraculous intervention to prove his presence. I mean, really, to back away from the precipice and not jump seems to lack faith. To jump seems to demonstrate faith and confidence. You say, well, how would I know? How would I know if I should really exercise faith and jump or not? And you'll know by this. Has God brought you to the precipice where you have no other choice but to take the step? Or have you decided that this is the way this must play out? And this is the way that God must deliver me. So I'm going to make the jump. Does that make sense? Is your circumstance such that you have no other option? Let me give you an example. Maybe this will help. 
It was in the year 2005 that we were meeting in Woodbury School down in Salem. We were a handful of people, maybe 35 people. And the school came to us and said, you can no longer meet here. We don't want your money anymore. I couldn't believe it. We were the easiest money they ever had. You can no longer meet here. We'd gotten some people together and we said, well, we need to find another place to meet or we need to find something to do, some way to, to handle this. The Lord is obviously moving us on from this place. And we got together and we prayed. We began looking of places in the area. Can we meet at another place? Can we rent another location? But all those doors seemed to be closed. It was not financially feasible until finally we decided, you know what? We just need to look for a permanent place to meet that we can call our own because we're always going to face this problem. This was pre-2008, and they were giving out loans like candy. And so we had an offer. We, we, we came to this location here. There was six acres here. There was a man that I met. He said, I'll come down on the price so you can afford it, but it was still a huge amount of money. And the bank said, all right, we'll loan you this amount of money. And we're like, well, yeah, sure you will, but we've got to pay it back. And we looked at all other avenues, but it seemed like the Lord was bringing us to this cliff, as it were, and saying, you need to, you need to step off the precipice. Now, you can be foolish in that kind of thing, can't you? Oh, God will provide. Well, look how much the bank's going to give us, man. Hey, this is great. And you can be very foolish in that and just decide this is what we must do without researching other avenues but by God's grace and with God's help we researched everything and it really seemed that God was just bringing us to this point and said no you're on the precipice this is what you must do and we did and it was scary I'd often tell the guys I said hey um, if this goes you guys find a new church I find a new job right if we don't succeed but, but God provided for us miraculously in ways that I could rehearse to you and met our needs as a congregation. And look where we are today. But that was a decision of faith because God put us there. It wasn't that we decided, well, here's what we're going to do, so God, show up and bless us. There's many a church that has failed because of that. This is the temptation of Jesus, and this is the temptation that you would often face. I demand that God catch me when I make this foolish step to demonstrate his presence. Jesus didn't do that. He said, Satan, that's not the way it works. Finally, quickly, look at the third temptation. Back in Matthew 4, we're told in verse 8, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Imagine that. This had to be supernatural. He took Jesus to a place where he could see all the wonders of the world, all the fanfare of Rome, all the wonderful kingdoms of the East, the Serengeti of Africa. All the riches. By then, the North American continent hadn't even been discovered. I wonder if he saw that and said, look at all the vast resources in that region. And he shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and he's appealing to our Lord through the eye. It says in verse 8, he showed him these things. And Satan says to him in verse 9, 
All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Everything I will give you. All these I'll give you if you worship me. Now, whose were those things? Who did they belong to? Well, there is this promise in the Old Testament that the Messiah would have those things. Ask of me, the Father says to the Son. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus understood this prophecy. He knew that those things would be his, but they would be his by this path of the Father. They would come not in an instant of glory. They would come through suffering, through laying down his life for the sins of mankind. Satan says, take a shortcut. Why should you have to suffer for these things? I can give them to you now. Was that true? Well, look at what the Bible says about Satan. 2 Corinthians 4 says, In their case, speaking of unbelieving people, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Who is the God of this world? Satan. Look at what 1 John says. 1 John 5, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of who? The evil one that Satan does have some kind of influence and grasp on the things in this world. We could look at Ephesians 2. Luke mentions this in his gospel in Luke 4. He is not their rightful Lord, but he does have a vast influence over the kingdoms of the world. And from that standpoint, Satan says, I will grant you that influence if you'll bow down and worship me. What is Jesus' response? Look at verse 10. Jesus says to him, Be gone, Satan. Notice, Jesus doesn't request. He commands. What does that tell you about Jesus' relationship to Satan? He is not his servant. He is his master. Be gone, Satan. For it is written, and this, I think, is directed right at Satan, you shall worship the Lord your God. What was Satan's problem? That's what got him into trouble in the beginning. I will not worship God. I will worship myself. I will be like the Most High. Jesus faces him face to face and says, you should worship the Lord your God. And him only shall you serve. What is the temptation? The temptation is this. Obtain the right position by the wrong means. It was right for Jesus to have the kingdoms of the world, but he would achieve them through suffering, and Satan offers this shortcut. Have it a different way. This is the nature of the temptation. Bypass the suffering. Receive the kingdoms of the world. This is the temptation of Jesus Christ. I want to end with these three things about temptation. Since we all face temptation and potential for danger, we all need a Savior. How does Jesus' temptation teach us about temptation? Number one, Jesus is our example when facing temptation. How did he face it? Do you notice what he did time and time again? He said, it is written, it is written, it is written. What does he do? He takes God's words, God's statements of Scripture, God's statement of truth, and puts it between him and the tempter. And he says, you want this, but God says this. It is written. 
And he attacks Satan, as it were, with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Oh, to have the Word of God ready. One reason, perhaps, that you fail often in temptation is because you don't take in the Word of God. You open it up on Sunday and you close it the rest of the week and you're a sitting duck for temptation. We must be in God's word, reading God's word, memorizing God's word, meditating on God's word, because God will bring his word to your mind, but he never will if you don't put it in there. Jesus is our example in facing temptation. You must be in the word of God. Secondly, Jesus is our sympathetic high priest when facing temptation. Hebrews chapter 4 says, For we have not a high priest who is unsympathetic toward us, or in other words, can't relate to us, but in all points he was tempted like we are, but he didn't sin. When you're tempted, Jesus knows what it feels like to face temptation, in fact, to a greater degree. Remember, we often lay down before the temptation. Jesus stood up and faced it to the hilt. And when you're tempted, you cry out to your sympathetic high priest, Jesus, you know the temptation I face. You know the struggle. I call upon you to help. Finally, Jesus is our conquering hero over the tempter. Beloved, this was nothing less than a battle in the wilderness. The first man, Adam, lived in a beautiful garden. Everything available for him. All trees are his, everything except for one. And the tempter came, and our great, 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 great grandfather, Adam, in whom we live, fell. But praise God, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, faced Satan head on in a wilderness. And he sent him running. Because he is the king of kings. And you can be in him. We often fail in temptation, but Jesus suffered and died that we might live victoriously in him. He is our conquering hero over the tempter. Praise God. Let's pray together.